Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Matthias Hanauer, director at Rubico, where he's part of their quant equity selection research team. We talk with Matthias about his work and research on investment factors, the resurrection of the value factor and premium, and much more. We pull in a number of charts and visuals in the back half of this episode, so you might be best to watch it on our Excess Returns YouTube channel or Spotify. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Rubico's Matthias Hanauer. Hi, Matthias. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome, Justin. Nice to be here. We always uh, love having first-time podcast guests on the show, and um, it's good because we get to be the first people to talk about all the interesting work and research um, and content and investment strategies that you're writing about and putting out there. And so I think this is going to be a fun conversation. You have a lot of great stuff that we're going to sort of work our way through today, um, and we're going to you know, be sitting mostly in the factor investing world, because that's kind of what you do day in and day out at Rubico. And, you know, you kind of, Jack and I and our audience, I think really value individuals and investors like you that kind of have one foot, I would, and you know, you, you can piggyback on this, but it's like you have one foot in the empirical finance sort of academic grounding world with the research you're doing, but you're also a practitioner. You guys run billions and billions of dollars in quantitative strategies and so you're deploying, you know, real world significant money in these strategies. And so that's a nice intersection of someone that's doing the research, but that's also, you know, running actual uh, money for investors. And I think that, that th this type of discussion, the things we're going to talk about is exactly what our audience, um, you know, really values. So really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, this is going to be fun. Thanks for inviting me. What, where we kind of want, we were talking before, you know, you're producing a lot of interesting research at Rubico and we, you know, we're always interested in sort of like the process a little bit, like how do you and the team there approach the topics and the things that you're writing about and researching? Like, how do you go about identifying those areas and then, you know, figuring out where you want to spend your time? Yeah, good question. So Maybe in contrast to some academics, we don't have like a multi-year research agenda where we said, okay, this is a stream of literature that we want to start and this will be the initial paper, maybe coming up with a new data set and then yeah, leveraging on this data set uh, yeah, multiple times. So most of it is quite spontaneous. So some of it is like we want to, uh, yeah, we see something in the market, we want to write about, we get questions from clients. Yeah? So when we get maybe roughly three or four times the same question from a client, then sometimes we say, yeah, maybe we have to answer it. Sometimes it can be a short client note. Sometimes it can be more an academic paper. So something new that we discovered that we would like to share, or sometimes also more with my academic work, then it's also with co-authors inspired. So it's I don't have really a multi-year research agenda. It's really more coming spontaneously. Um, yeah, looking back where I'm coming from for my THD, PhD, I was more into international factors, international data, because back then at the university, we did not have Chris Compass that. So I had to leverage a bit on international factors. So, and then there's less competition there usually, then I built some expertise then in international factors. And then, yeah, there was one paper, 
and then sometimes you have an idea because you get some comments or in the review process it was um, uh, was asked uh, questions and said yeah it's not for this paper but interesting idea so usually it comes from one idea to the another and then if you do it for multiple years you have a lot of papers in parallel and uh, with some papers it goes faster but that is the multi-year process so in the end you see the end product but usually, typically it's a yeah, sometimes a shorter process behind it. Sometimes it can be several years behind it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you, you can be more entrepreneurial and spontaneous with the research. To your point, if you're seeing something in the market, and we'll talk about actually one of the tweets that you had um, in a little bit here, but you know, you, it, it was kind of bringing in aspects of your research, but then some more recent stuff, like with the Magnificent Seven, which we'll, we'll, we'll look at that um, in a little bit. But um, one of the, let's just start out because we're going to talk about your papers. The first paper we're going to discuss is Honey, I Shrunk the Factor Zoo um, and kind of dig into that. But we want to ask you out of the gate, how would you define the characteristics of a good investment factor? Yeah, good one. So I think there are several requirements to be a good factor. Uh, if you went, maybe you have a bit of structured view on it, uh, maybe there should be a good motivation why a factor should work. Yeah, Often the story, why it works is yeah, driven after um, you're told after the, the finding was uh, shared, but I think it should be a clear economic motivation why a factor should work. Then there should be a clear evidence that it has actual a premium. I mean, you think about long short factors that there's like the long leg has higher returns than, than the short leg. Yeah, then we require usually some type of robustness. Yeah, you can think about robustness over time, maybe not in every year, but if you have multiple decades of data, then you want to see that uh, it should work nearly or less in, um, in every decade. And also then there's robustness across different regions. Yeah? You can think if a factor works in US, you also want to see that it works in developed XUS, or you want to see that it works in emerging markets. So these are typical requirements that we have at Rubico and also in my academic uh, uh, research. And I think one point that is often overlooked, a lot of people look at the standalone return of a factor but is it really a new independent factor? Uh, does it give you alpha beyond that other factors already give you? This is an additional point. And it should be tradable, implementable. So a lot of factors uh, look good on paper without transaction costs, without implementation delay. So this is then yeah, describing a pattern in the data to something that you can really harvest. I think this is the difference. As Justin mentioned, we're going to start off with your paper, Honey, We Shrunk the Factors Do. And uh, first, I want to compliment you on the title. It's one of my, uh, you know, a lot of times we get these dry titles in these research papers, but uh, I would say that one along with uh, AQR's Size Matters If You Control Your Junk are two of my favorite uh, of paper titles. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Um, yeah, as we dig into the paper, um, I want to talk a little bit about the process of comp compressing the factor zoo because you, you had a quote in the paper that you compress the factor zoo by explaining the available alpha rather than the covariance matrix of factor returns. And a lot of people probably won't understand that. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about the process and, and what you were doing there. Yeah, first we started writing the paper, we of course looked what is, what is there around? Are there other papers already trying to tempt the factor zoo? And we did some literature review and then we mainly saw that it was mainly academic papers. They also investigated several dozens of factors. But what they did was not really explain the return, the alpha of the factor zoo, but more like the variance of the returns in the factor zoo. So more technical speaking, these papers did like a principal component analysis and then trying to decompose, to summarize the variation in, in factor returns. And I think there are also papers that try to improve this process. But still, I think 
let's take a hypothetical hypothetical factor that has like a one percent return every month with zero variance. Yeah, so every month one percent, it will be have a, like a great return, zero variance, and this factor would not be picked up by a PCA. And actually, some PCA papers call these type of factors weak factors. Well, for us, it would be a great factor. Yeah? Having 1% return every month without any risk, this is something yeah, you will never find in practice, but actually this is something you would be looking for. Yeah. So this is um, what is a bit the difference. And what we are more interested in is really like which factors explain all the alpha in the factor zoo rather than the, the variance uh, and the covariance structure of the factor returns. I want to ask you about innovation in the factor space, because you touched on this in the paper and you have this quote, newly published factors sometimes supersede older factor definitions, emphasizing the relevance, relevance of continuous factor innovation based on new insights or newly available data. So I just wanted to ask you about that more. I mean, it, this is something we struggle with a lot in investing. You know, you have these things you've been following for a long time, and then sometimes things change and sometimes you have to change the way you define them or the way you follow them or whatever it is. So can you just talk about that idea of innovation in factor research? Well, to some extent, this finding was not surprising. Yeah? If there are published factors that are getting published after some other factors, then you would expect that they do better than already published factors. Otherwise, they would have not been uh, published. What is a bit different in our approach is that we really control for all the other factors that have been published before, whereas maybe some of these papers did a bit of cherry picking, controlled for some factors, but not all. So we took all the factors we had in this database and controlled for all the ones already published. So uh, I think this is a bit of a cleaner result. And um, yeah, so, so this, therefore, it's not that surprising that the yeah, newly published factors are getting them more important than already published ones. But I think your question also goes a bit to, to a direction like, yeah, if there has been, or if you can backtest it to, for the whole history, then it's okay. But what do we do with newer factors that maybe don't have the long history? Think about some uh, text-derived, image-derived, uh, what audio-derived factors or from internet data that don't have the full history that, where you cannot go back to 1960 or 1920 to test them. So how do you deal with these kind of factors? Then you have a shorter backtest, yeah? And there are also maybe more degrees of freedom to find. And I think there it's really important to have a good research protocol. Think about the economic motivation before actually testing the data. Do not do too much multiple testing because you can tweak a factor until you find something, starting with a clear motivation, maybe defining upfront how you want to measure it and doing little changes to that. Testing then the robustness across regions, maybe if you have limited uh, time series data and maybe having then an independent verification of the results by some other researcher then I think this is types of or examples for a good research protocol that you can handle these uh, difficulties. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing a lot of us are facing right now is a lot of, with all this new data that's out there, we're seeing so many things we can test against, but we don't have the history. You know, like we had Kai Wu on the podcast. He's done a lot of interesting stuff around intangible assets, but it, it presents a challenge for the researcher. You know, when you think about if I'm used to, you know, 80 or 100 years of data or whatever with value, I've got a lot shorter data and I've got to figure out, you know, what to make of that. I, I assume that that's a pretty significant challenge. Yes, it is. So this is a, a bit, You on the one side, you want to have this new exciting alpha. On the other side, maybe you have to be a bit careful because you don't have the long history, the like overall type of different macro regimes where the factor has to, to prove itself. But therefore, I think it's really the economic motivation trying to use then maybe the, the like 
the robustness in the in, in the regional differences to to get more trust in a new factor. I want to ask you about equal weighted factors versus value weighted factors and how that impacted your research. But first, I think it's important we define value weighted factors because I see so many people who think that's something different than what it is. You know, they think it's factors rated by the weighted by the factor value. So can you talk about in, in uh, academic research when they say value weighted factors, what are they talking about? Yeah, so typically when you think about academic research, the U.S. research, they look at like the Chris Compustat uh, research yeah, or, or database. And when you look back to the 1960s, there were around uh, 1,500 stocks, then getting to more than, I think, 6,000 stocks at the end of the 1990s. Nowadays, we are at 3,000 stocks. And yeah, but when you look into all these stocks, I think half of them or 60% are defined as micro caps, like on, uh, together making up only 3% of the total market capitalization, but more than 50% of the number of names. And to avoid that these microcap stocks drive the overall results, researchers typically recommend to evaluate the returns with the market capitalization. I think this is on one side good because uh, you limit the, the, the influence of these microcaps. On the other side, you run the risk that only a few stocks drive your results, like being the microcaps, the apples today, that then drive your results and you can be lucky if it's in the long leg or short leg on the portfolio and it's going up or down. So most academic research then would be done with valuated factors, is that correct? Yes. So it's typically in our paper, this uh, yeah, factor su sip or honey, we shrunk the, the factor su. We used uh, like a bit of change of this definition. We used there the valuated or kept valuated factors. So where the, in principle, these factors are still weighted with the market cap, but it's kept at uh, the 80 percentile NICE of NICE market cap. So I'll come back to the equal weighted versus valuated and how that impacted the research. But first, I think it's probably good to, to take a high, high level look and say what you did. So there's so many factors these days. I mean, it seems like every day someone's trying to invent another factor. And you try to take all of those and compress them down to a, a much more limited number of factors. So can you just talk about what you were trying to accomplish and the methodology you used to get there? Yeah, so there were like more than 150 factors in this database. And our question was, yeah, these are these really 150 independent factors or are these less? Yeah? And uh, the way we tried to compress this factor, Sue, was we started with the CAPM and added the next factor as that one that was helping to reduce the overall alpha in the factor Sue most. Yeah? So we measured this with like the GRS statistic, but it's also the same factor that has the highest significance of the alpha for the CAPM. So then we added this factor to the uh, to the CAPM, and one iteration further, we check which factor of the remaining 152 factors reduces then again the available factor um, the factor alpha most. This was again then the factor with the highest uh, significant of the alpha for this two-factor model. So this gave us a three-factor model, and so on and so forth, until we reached like a factor model that left no. Uh, significant alpha available. So, and this ended then with around 15 factors. And to go back to the point about equal weighting versus value weighting, the, the number of factors you were able to reduce it down to was different, right? Depending on whether you use value weighted factors or equal weighted factors. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So for the US, it was about 15 factors where this GS statistic became significant or that we found no uh, alpha with a T-step bigger than three in the data. But with uh, uh, like equally weighted factors, we had, I think it was more than 30 factors it needed 
to have the GS statistic insignificant? I think there are two reasons behind it. So there's like the, t the equal weighted factors itself had a high alpha. So the, the equally weighted uh, alpha was about 50% higher than for the capped value weighted factors. And on the other side, the alphas were a bit more uncorrelated because we see that the sharp ratio, the tangency portfolio sharp ratio of the equally weighted factors was about two times uh, or three times higher than the uh, sharp ratio of the tangency portfolio of the uh, capped value weighted factors. And what were the, uh, what were the, I mean, we don't have to go through all 15 factors, but are they the types of things we're used to seeing? Value, momentum, quality, low volatility. Is that the type of stuff that was in there? Uh, yes, to some extent, but not only. So I think when you, if I remember correctly out of my head, the first picked factor, uh, picked factor was uh, cash-based operating uh, profitability. So this is like a top um, income line, profitability factor adjusted for some working capital changes. So this is also like an uh, enhanced version of the Pharma French and profitability factor, but with some cash element to it. Then there was like an accruals uh, factor, the change in net operating assets. Um, then there was some uh, revenue growth factor similar to the Laconisha paper. And there was also like some uh, um, intrinsic uh, uh, market, uh, intrinsic value to market value factors or an enhanced uh, book to price factor because this intrinsic value is based on a residual income model that starts with book value plus some uh, information about future pro expected profitability. So these were enhanced versions of, of uh, existing variables. Also like uh, momentum was then picked because we start with, uh, we have once you have value in the model, typically the model also likes momentum because they nicely diversify. For instance, there was uh, the residual uh, momentum factor picked up as factor, factor number six. It was quite interesting to see because um, both I and also David Blitz, we had uh, several papers on this residual or idiosyncratic momentum factor. But there were also like different uh, factors or maybe we should call them more signals, more short-term stuff, uh, seasonalities, so same month uh, seasonality or other months seasonality. Um, or even like uh, short-term uh, reversal type of factors. So for someone looking at this, is, is the idea here that, you know, if you can pair this with like Fama and French and like a five-factor model or something like that, the idea is there's factors in here you found that are not explained by the five major factors that are out there. Is that right? Yes. So uh, when you compare like this data-driven model with having the same factors as the Fama French model or this uh, Q-factor model, then we see that these uh, data-driven models in our process they did a much better job than the academic factor models, uh, with even with the same number of factors, and that it needed much more factor to explain really all the alpha and the factor zoo. So I want to move to your next paper, which is actually an excellent paper. Uh, it's called Resurrecting the Value Premium, uh, which obviously all of us hope is going to happen very soon. <laughs> um, but maybe it has to some degree already. Uh, so, but, but anyway, one of the interesting things you, you said in that paper, before we get into the details of it, is this idea that... Uh, when Fama and French introduced the five-factor model and put in profitability and investment, that basically in the resulting five-factor model, the HML value factor turns out to be redundant. It is fully subsumed by the other factors. And that's an idea I haven't heard many people say. So I think it's worth talking about a little bit. Can you explain why that is? So that's correct. So when Fama French added profitability and investments to the model and then did some kind of spending regressions, so value was redundant because the, the factor spending alpha was explained by the investment factor. And the investment factor is like the change in total assets. You go long in stocks that had uh, low growth in total assets and short in stocks 
that had high um, uh, growth in total assets. But I think with two simple changes, actually you could already uh, like resurrect uh, the value in the Pharma French world. So maybe it's interesting going back a bit how uh, Pharma French define value. So they take the book to price ratio. We all know that. But when measuring uh, the book to price ratio, they, they define it only once a year at the end of June. They don't take the market capitalization, so the price they have to pay for the stock at the end of June. But interestingly, they take the market capitalization from end of December of the previous year. So it's a bit strange. If you buy a car or a house, you typically look at the most recent price that you have to pay, not a, a price that you have to pay uh, had to pay uh, six months ago. So, and I think, I don't know why they did it, but I think probably when in the 1990s people were defining book-to-price ratios, they compared the version with the market capitalization, the price from the previous year, end of December and end of June, and probably found that the performance is very similar, or even slightly higher for this version with this lack of market capitalization. And it's interesting or a bit odd that these uh, yeah, yeah, lacked um, book-to-price uh, value performs better than the, the most recent book-to-price value. And the reason is probably, uh, or the reason is, that it loads more negatively on momentum. And people back then were not that aware of momentum. And um, so, but then when you now also reuse momentum, for instance, in your portfolio, or if you blend uh, momentum value scores to, to come up with your portfolio, then actually it turns out that this more timely value effect is better because it's more negatively correlated uh, with value and it's then also not um, redundant anymore in such a, a spending type of regression so if you extend the model also include momentum and take the most recent price to find uh, the book to market ratio then value is already not redundant anymore so i'm just interesting though if they going back to farm and friendship they found value redundant um after they included profitability investment why did it stay in there is it just because it's such a big name factor that you know they, they couldn't bear to take it out I think they write it in the paper. I don't remember it exactly, but I think they said, yeah, because of the history, because of the yeah, the, the evidence going back to, to 1920, because of the evidence across regions, they kept it in. And also in their follow-up paper on international markets, I think they showed that it's not redundant. So I think they just kept it in because of historical reasons. But when you really look at the, the data in the paper, then it had, yeah, they could also have said, uh, we take just a four-factor model and and uh, use this one. So in your paper, you had basically three steps you used to try to improve the value factor. And one you've already alluded to a little bit, which is this idea of additional metrics. Um, is there is there anything else we have to cover there before we get to the other ones, or is, have you pretty much covered that? Um, I think it's it's interesting or to to look which factors we, we use there. So I think we also use book to price. Uh, we we use this uh, more uh, devil variant of book to price using the most recent. Uh, market capitalization in the denominator, but also we do some um, don't see uh, research and develop expenditures as cost, but capitalize them to have a bit as entanglable component in, in book to price. And we also there use three other metrics. And I think this is nothing that we say, okay, book to price stopped working and therefore we add new uh, value variables that are better in this universe. It's more like a, a general approach. So we don't want uh, to define a factor like value just on, on one single measure or one valuation matter, but take a broader view. And also when you look back in the history, so already in the 1990s, there were several value definitions. There was earnings to price around, cash flow to price around, dividend yield around. And it was just a paper of Pharma French, I think in 1996, 
where they said, okay, book to price is good enough to explain the other valuation ratios. And therefore our measure of choice is book to price. But yeah, this, what is the best measure over a certain sample period is also quite sample specific. For instance, if you would run the same tests as Farmer French 96 with all the data after the publication to now, actually, I think earnings to price was better than book to price. So therefore we prefer a more composite approach. And we don't say that um, this enhanced value definition that we came up in the paper is the best one and cannot further improve, but it was more something I think practitioners agree with and we try to use common knowledge to construct this enhanced value definitions. And as I already said, we took this book to price value, integrated a bit R&D to capture entanglements, and then we went to the different sources an investor could look at. We went to the income statement, uh, used uh, EBITDA to EV. Yeah? So it's a bit of an enhanced earnings to price ratio. There's a bit less manipulated by, by the, some of the company operations, more top line. It's also uh, accounting, less accounting leeway because it's before depreciation, amortization. Uh, it looks at the, the total um, size of the, of the company, not just um, to total capital structure of the company. We took uh, cash flow to price from the, the cash flow statement. And we also thought about including one measure from uh, looking at the um, payout policy of a company and not just using dividend yield, but also share buybacks and share issuance to come up with something what we call net payout yield, but is also very similar to shareholder yield. Um, so, so having these different perspectives to, to measure value. Why do you think price to book is still so widely used? Like when I go look behind the scenes at like value ETFs, like huge value ETFs, they all still seem to use that as like a primary factor. You know, when, when most of us who are, are looking at research will say like a composite or other factors or something else is better. Like, why do you think that's still so widely used? I think in a lot of indices, they, they also use a blend of composites. Actually, I'm a, I'm a fan of book to price. So uh, a lot of it's criticized a lot, but if you maybe don't look at the standalone performance of book to price, but more as the added value to other factors, I would say book to price, when you have already profitability or momentum in your composite score or in your factor portfolio, I would say book to price adds more than something like EBITDA to EV or cash to price because it's more orthogonal. But standalone, probably the performance of the other value signals is better, but seeing it in a multi-factor context, I would say book to price is the best of these four uh, value factors that we discussed. So the second thing you looked at the paper was this idea of risk management. And this kind of gets at an issue that a lot of value investors debate, which is this idea of if, if there's a lot of cheap companies in one particular industry or sector, do I overweight that sector or do I stay with the sector weightings and then try to find value within there? So can you talk a little bit about what you found there? So what we say in the paper, we apply some very simple risk management and therefore we uh, look at reach and sector neutral value scores. So we do some uh, industry neutralization. And when you look at it empirically, so value gets more from within industry selection than across industry allocation. So what I saw in my research is mainly that you, if, if you remove this uh, neutrality, sector neutrality, then you gain a little bit of extra performance, but much more additional tracking error. So if you're really looking for a good uh, return to risk ratio, then it's maybe better to uh, compare the Japanese utility company with another Japanese utility company than with a U.S. tech firm. And then the third thing you looked at was making more efficient use of breath. Um, and I think probably to, to answer that, it's probably good to take a step back and say, 
what is the universe that's usually used in academic testing and, and how did you change that w when you looked at it here? Because I, I think that probably gets at the, the root of the issue. So when you look at the typical universe that academic studies in the US are using, and yeah, this Chris Compistat universe, so then it's about uh, 1,500 stocks in the 1960s that grows until 6,000 stocks in the end, uh, at the end of the 1990s. And nowadays we have around 3,000 stocks. And, but within this big universe, there are a lot of microcap stocks. Yeah? About 60% of the stocks only make up 3% of the accumulated market cap. So therefore, I think people usually do valuating. But when you look at this academic common factors as the HML factor of Pharma and French, they, on the other side, do valuating, but split the factor into two parts, the, the big cap lag and the short cap lags. So where like the, the big caps are 50% and the small caps are also getting 50% in the factor calculation, although their accumulated weight is only 10%. So actually they're getting an overweight compared to uh, in, in the factor calculation than their weight in the universe. And actually when you look at them, the, the performance of these factors, they're mainly driven by the small cap lag. So what we said, because it was so challenging to find book to price working in the, um, in the big cap segment, let's focus on these stocks. These are roughly stocks like in the MSCI uh, USA, yeah, the, 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 the investable universe for many uh, institutional investors. And these are around 600 stocks. Take this universe, but then don't apply evaluating this universe, but more equivating so that we're just not depending on a few mega cap stocks. The results are very similar if you lose, use market cap, uh, log market cap weighting or square root market cap uh, weighting or capping the weights at a certain um, point. But uh, we want to go away from this value weighting because we were already in the large cap space. So going back to the title, resurrecting the value premium, how much were you able to resurrect the value premium by making all these changes? I mean, if you look at the standard value factor, I think it's like since 2007, it's, it's been pretty much a struggle with some positive things in there, like how different is it when you, when you made these adjustments? So actually, when you look at the, the large cap value factor, then it stopped already working 30 years uh, in the US. So, and, but we look at the last 30 years in this, with this enhanced definition, then we see overall a pretty good solid track record over the last 30 years, but you're right. The last 10 years were a bit uh, weaker and then especially in the period between 2018 and 2020, we also saw like an underperformance of this enhanced value factor. And um, yeah, we have to go back a bit. We wrote this paper in the summer of 2020, published it in um, uh, autumn of, or put it on SSN in autumn uh, 2020. And I think since then we saw then some recovery, but I think you want to talk more about what was happening between 2018 and 2020. Yeah, so is that... Basically, the, the long struggles of value are not present in, in your situation, right? But from 2018 to 2020, your factor sees the same things as the other one. But a lot of that, that basically shows that it's, it's basically a multiple uh, situation, right? And, and not some sort of fundamental situation. Is that right? Yes. So what, what we see when we look at the, this performance, it has a small dip around 1990. And then later in this uh, 2018, 2020, so-called quant winter. And we were interested what was driving the performance. Why is it underperforming? Is it overcrowded, too much known value? Uh, did the fundamentals uh, like play out much more for the expensive stocks than for the um, uh, cheap stocks? And what we saw, so actually we then we tried to 
yeah, decompose these effects. Uh, we tried, is it the expensiveness? Uh, we, we tried to come up with this value of, of value, the value spread factor. So some people said that uh, value might be overcrowded. It's, it's known, everybody knows it, therefore it stopped working. But we were wondering if this is really the case. And therefore we looked at also what we call the value of value, the value spread. So how much the valuation of value compared to the history has changed. Per definition, value stocks are always uh, cheaper than their expensive counterparts. And similar as for the, the value definition itself, we looked at several measures, also controlling for the normal uh, spread in, in, in valuations over time. And then we saw, when you look at this resulting time series, that there were two abnormal periods. So most of the time, this valuation spread was around one, but there were two periods where it was really going up. First time the spread was going really up was at the end of the 1990s, during the so-called dot-com bubble. The spread went up, value did not perform great, but then at the beginning of 2000, when the spread came down again, down again, value really had a nice performance again. And the second time the spread really went up was in this period after 2018 to 2020. And we saw that also value there was um, underperforming. What we did in the paper then also was trying to correct uh, for the changes in the, the valuation spread. So the, the returns that we saw there were mainly driven by multiple expansion for growth stocks. Correcting for these changes in valuation, we saw that um, value was actually not underperforming in this period at all, uh, having a maybe a yeah, small positive performance in the US and then a, a, a slightly negative performance in the other universes. But most of the underperformance was just explained by the changes in relative valuation between value and growth stocks and not by com com company fundamentals. I'm wondering just, uh, if we take a step back with this, like a lot of people during this period where value has been struggling and obviously your changes make it struggle a lot less, but a lot of people have been saying, you know, value investing doesn't work anymore. It's dead for some reason. And there's been a million different reasons people have come up with. But I'm just wondering as a researcher, like, how do you think about tackling that problem? Like, if we ever get to a point where a factor like value is dead, like Corey Hostin, I don't know if you read his paper, uh, Factor Fimblewinter, but he looked at this idea and said, like, if you just use data to say value's dead, you would need a very, very long period of data to disprove the history we have. So you can't really use, it would be like longer than our investing lifetimes. So you can't just purely lose, use data. So I'm just wondering, how would you think about that idea that if a factor is being questioned that's worked over a really long period of time and people are questioned whether it stopped working, how do you think about analyzing behind the scenes to say, is this something we still want to follow or does this not work anymore? So, so of course we like value because it has a really strong economic value, uh, motivation. But of course we try to understand what is happening. And this is also what we did in the paper. And we saw that most of the underperformance just came from valuation changes. And in our view, this was unsustainable because if it would have been the fundamentals that it would have changed, then maybe, okay, growth stocks nowadays really deliver the growth that they were promising. But this was not the case. Most of the underperformance came first from valuation changes. And actually, this is not a sign that the factor is dead, that, but actually that the outlook is much better because the expected return is higher when the spread is wider than it is narrow. But it's, and, of course, it's hard to, to stay on course then. Yeah, and I think a lot of this was really captured. It was great. You had this uh, tweet that you put out um, where you kind of built off of this, you know, resurrection in value. And I think we, we, we talked about some of the things in there, but um, a couple other 
uh, charts stood out to me. And, and, you know, you can just comment on these as I sort of rattle them off. But um, you sort of looked at one of the charts was that scatter plot where you looked at the valuation spread versus the value return. So can you just talk to what sort of the, the, the data sort of shows us there? So what we do there is, uh, this is not just the US, but this is an all country universe. So developed and emerging markets. So on what we use there, we have these annual value returns on the x-axis, or sorry, on, on the y-axis. These are annual 12-month uh, value returns. And on the x-axis, this is the change in the value spread. So what you see is that when the, the, annual, the value spread widens, yeah, so um, when cheap stocks become cheaper than they were compared to their own history, and expensive stocks, they become more expensive than they used to be, then this is bad for, for value returns. And the other way around, when this value spread uh, gets smaller, uh, get, gets compressed, so then it's good for value. And the interesting part is here, you also can look at the intercept. And actually, the intercept is about 10%. So if there are no changes in the valuation spread, based on this long short factor, we would expect like a 10% um, return, annual, annual return of the value factor. And uh, I think this is quite interesting. Actually, this, uh, like correcting for this valuation spread, uh, the, the value return is higher than the realized return because over the full sample period, we see a small widening of the valuation spread. Or I'm just uh, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on factor timing? Because, you know, when, when we get into spreads and stuff like that, people always have these ideas that, well, you know, when the spread's wide or whatever, I, I can take advantage of that. I can, I can go into the factor. I can time this. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that and if that really works in the real world? Yeah, to some extent. So I think if it really comes to extremes, you can use it a bit. You can also use it to, to um, maybe time not only value itself, but, but also other factors. But what I have seen is that the resulting effect of timing a lot of factors resembles then a bit the, the value premium. But I see it more a bit like for street, as for strategic asset allocation. Uh, even if the spread nowadays is very wide for the, for the value factor, you cannot rule out that the spread comes, becomes even wider the next month. So you really have to be careful and only apply it in extremes or maybe uh, it helps you to, stick, to stay on course. Yeah? So not giving up because the recent performance has been bad. And if the recent performance has been bad because the value spread is widened, then you shouldn't give up. But actually, your factor is now more attractive than it was before. You know, after 2022, I thought like the relationship between like growth and value and interest rates, I thought I was right about my theory, which is interest rates go up, growth stocks should go down, value should outperform. Um, and that happened for basically one year. Um, and, you know, but after this year, it's, I think some investors are, you know, sort of asking or questioning that. But one of the charts you had in there was the relationship between value and interest rates. And so can you just sort of talk to what your findings were there? Yeah, sure. So I think, first of all, I think this economic argument that growth stocks have a longer duration is quite appealing and that there should be more um, uh, interest rate sensitive. But you can also look at the data and then you see that yeah, for the long uh, history, the relationship between value returns and changes in interest rates were like minor or, or there was no relationship. And then you had this period between 2018 and I think uh, 22 or 2020. And uh, there we see a moderate 
positive relation between the two. But I think for the last two years, I think we see again, no relationship again. So I was a bit always critical because when you think about also other markets, think about Japan, I think their uh, interest rates have been declining since the 1990s and value is one of the most factors in Japan, maybe the best factor working in Japan. Or if yeah. you think about um, the early 2000s, when we had the, this rally, value rally after the dot-com bubble, uh, initially it was not that interest rates raised, uh, they, even they decli declined first. So it was for these uh, two or three years where we really saw this um, relationship. And, uh, but I think it's not a structural causal relationship, a relationship. And what about this last chart where you have the S and P equal weight index, and then you have the magnificent, I didn't even know this Bloomberg has a magnificent seven price index. It was, it was actually funny. The guys on CNBC today were talking about that. Someone should do a show just around the magnificent seven. Like that's the only, the only topic is the mag seven, because I, I, as they pointed out, they have like an 11 in total, it's like over 11 trillion in market cap and, you know, seven, you know, te basically tech stocks here in the U S but anyways, what was your, what was your chart sort of uncovering there underneath the surface of the market? What were you getting at? Yeah, I showed this chart because there was a bit of a puzzle. Yeah. When I look at the, the value factor that we had in this paper and looked at it, then the, the year to date performance in 23 was positive. So even in the US, even better in uh, international markets. And then, yeah, why is this the case? Because if you look at value, many value portfolios, then actually they underperform the, the broad market index, be it uh, the MSCI world or the S&P 500. And actually what I think is the case this year, it's not that value is doing bad. So the average value stock is outperforming average growth stocks, but these yeah, seven magnificent stocks, yeah, they outperform. And some of them are really uh, expensive stocks like Tesla or Nvidia, but it's more like a size factor in disguise yeah, than a value effect uh, that is going on this year. So there is a bit of, some of these stocks are growth, but uh, yeah, not the, all growth stocks are outperforming value stocks as we have maybe seen in, in 2018, 2020. So in general, do you think the setup for value investing looks favorable where we are today? Yeah. Definitely, when you look at the, the current valuation spreads, then they are yeah still at the same uh, spread as we have seen in the dot-com bubble. But of course, it depends a bit if you can uh, yeah do more value tilts, slightly overweighting uh, value stocks, slightly underweighting growth stocks, then you can get this more pure effect. If you're more like having a concentrated value portfolio, then also depends a lot how these uh, magnificent seven stocks are doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can, you know, as value investors, you can say, okay, the time is finally here. And then, you know, be disappointed in the, the, you know, the next month. But uh, I don't know, the evidence is pretty strong. I agree that, you know, value looks uh, favorable and attractive. And, and, and that tweet, you know, we're just highlighting a few of the charts. I think there was 10 different tweets you had in there with different, you know, bodies of evidence sort of supporting, supporting this idea. Um, so this has been great, Matthias. Um, we really appreciate your time, you coming on with us, first podcast. Um, I like, personally, I like sort of the balanced approach that you take to um, these questions. You know, there's pluses and minuses all along the way in investing and being realistic and uh, sort of honest and knowing that is, is important. Um, we like to ask all of our guests sort of a standard closing question. 
Um, and you can answer this any way that you want. Um, you can be quant, it could be non-quant, whatever. Um, but based on your experience in the markets, if you could impart one lesson and to teach your average investor, what would that be? Don't rely too much on past realized returns. So this sounds a bit like the disclaimer, past performance is not a guarantee for future performance, but I would like to elaborate a bit more. So can think about of a bond, yeah, when um, bond yields are going up as in the last two years, then it's bad for realized returns. Yeah? So the, the bond prices go down. And, uh, but actually you had bad past or negative past returns, but actually now the bond is much more attractive. The concept I think for bond is quite clear. But the same concept also holds for the equity market. Yeah, it can be if the uh, expected returns for the equity um, market go up, usually the, um, the realized performance is bad. And the same is also holds for, for uh, relative performance, be it value versus growth. Yeah, and the value spread widens. Actually, the, the val expected value return increases, but typically the past realized return is negative. Or if you look at large versus small stocks or uh, developed versus emerging market stocks, so this is a bit um, why I stress this. And on the other side, if you're more if you're more quant investor and looking at a new factor, I think you should not only evaluate uh, a factor on its standalone realized returns, but also really checking what is the added value of the factor, controlling for the other factors that you already have in the portfolio. If people want to follow you, your your get your research, um, follow you on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it. Um, where can they go to learn more? So I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. So both on both platforms, you can just find me by my name. So Hanau Matthias is it on, on Twitter and uh, on LinkedIn, it's Matthias Hanauer. Great. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Happy holidays. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.